Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. Chapter 16. So for context, we just got out of all that uncleanness stuff. You know, I saw my dad was in the in the stream right now, and I, I have to tell this story uh, before we dig into this because it reminds me of discharges and uncleanness when you're a kid and having to teach kids about it. When I was a kid, we had this blue felt like 70s chair that was in our living room. And whenever we watched TV as a family, um, I was uh, I would sit in that chair. And as a kid, nobody had taught me that it was unclean to take my boogers and instead of getting up and washing my hands or cleaning them, I would just kind of reach behind the chair and wipe them on the wall in the living room. And I remember one time my mom was rearranging the living room and she pulled the chair away from the wall and <clears throat> the living room was painted like a light blue, but al along the wall behind this chair, there was an inch thick strip that had turned green from the yellow that had been pasted onto it. It was disgusting. And my mom goes, oh, who would do this kind of thing? And um, and I remember just hiding. I like ran to my room and kept private thinking no one would notice that it was me. And as I grew up, I realized my mom had to know it was me. Um, and she washed the wall and she cleaned it up like a good you know Jewish culture tradition. Uh, we clean that stuff up. We just don't leave it around for people because anyone who touches it would be unclean too. Um, but uh, I was just thinking of discharge and training your children, and for me that was there. I learned as I grew up, by the way, that when you do have to pick your nose, you put it in other places. You don't just leave it on the wall for your mom to clean up later. Um, that that's holy and that's better because why would I want to make her ceremonially unclean? So now that you have that story, let's get into Leviticus 16. This is the good stuff. This is the middle of Leviticus, and I think, you know, some people think Leviticus is just one of those books you just blast through. It was on chapter 16 that I realized I love this book. I love everything it teaches about how to be holy, how to get close to God, how to be with God. That sort of thing is amazing and beautiful and wonderful. So here's the Day of Atonement. Get ready for this. After all the unclean stuff happens, now is the operative word. Now we can move on. And that's exactly what happens. Now we get to the Lord speaking to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron. See how we're just picking up where we left off here? After we've dealt with that two sons thing and, and how they were unclean and they died because they were unclean coming into the tabernacle area, when they offered profane fire before the Lord and died, and the Lord said to Moses, tell, your tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at just any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, lest he die. For I'll appear in a cloud above the mercy seat. So no human gets to just walk into the presence of God. You don't get to do that. There's some symbolic things. And there's this time once a year, the day of atonement, when you're going to get to come into that area and you're going to get to make atonement there. So this is really a reminder that this isn't Aaron's temple. The high priest doesn't control this temple or this tabernacle. God controls the tabernacle. 
I think that's an important thing for America today to understand. When we worship God, the God of the universe, right? Yahweh, Almighty, we don't determine the terms in which we get to have that relationship with God. God determines the terms, and God has laid those terms out through a progressive revelation in the Word of God, and we don't get to invent that. Aren't you glad that we don't worship a human-made religion that has emptiness at the other end? We worship in a God-made religious set of practices that has eternal life at the end of it. And I love that idea. So, in chapter 10, they were struck down for offering this profane fire, um, and, and we get to see that God will enforce his own rules, and he will make that happen. So only the high priest will get to do this. With, without a sacrifice, there's no remission of sin. That's God's prescription. That's God's way that he's set up. It's not a human way. So one question is, are you okay with God being God? Are you okay with God being in charge? Theologically, this isn't a tough concept, right? This is something a five-year-old five can understand. Do you accept the idea that God says to come into my presence, there needs to be a sacrifice for your sins? There needs to be atonement, or it doesn't happen, right? And if you're okay with that idea that you serve a God that actually has a will and actually has a way that he wants to do things, then you can start to move forward in a faithful walk with God and with Christ. So there's a transition here from the sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7 to walking consecrated or, or separated from the world, chapters 8 through 15, and now you get this day of purity. After, after chapter 16, you're going to get back to more laws for purity, chapters 20, 17 through 26, and then in chapter 27, you're going to get this addendum on sacrifices in Leviticus. And if you haven't guessed already, the entire book of Leviticus is in chiastic form. Sacrifices on the outside, walking in purity, and in the middle is this chapter we're going to do right now, chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. It's, that's what it's all about. So the priests need to be pure to make this happen. They're going to offer sacrifice for the nation. Jewish people call this Yom Kippur. This is the big day, the great day, the day of purity. Um, and it's right in the middle of this chapter, in the standalone chapter in the middle of Leviticus. So we have this thing bookended on either side. This is the appointed time when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, the covering of the mercy seat over the law that we all have to follow, and it happens one day a year, the great day on the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur. Verse 3. And Aaron shall come into the holy place with the blood of a young bull as a sin offering and, a, and of a ram as a burnt offering, and he shall put the holy tunic on, and the linen trousers on his body. He shall put the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. And he shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen turban that he shall be attired. These are holy garments. But they're not the holy garments we talked about before, right? That had gems on them and a holiness to the Lord thing. There's a glory and a majesty to the high priest. But in this day, the high priest humbles themselves and all they're going to wear is linen, right? They're going to just... Strip it down to those basic, humble clothings. The clothings of a working person, right? The clothings that are pure and white, but they're not ornamental, they're not glorious, and they're not majestic. That's what the high priest is going to come before the Lord on this day. He's going to come humbly. And he shall wash his body in water and put them on. And if you don't get the significance of washing in water, look at the last chapter, chapter 15, that we just got done talking about, right? 
And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and one ram as a burnt offering. The two kids of the goats as a sin offering. The two goats are one offering. And we'll come back to that, but it takes two goats to do the full imagery that God wants to paint with this picture he's going he's gonna to put together. He's offering for himself in verse 3 and verse 6, and in verse 5 he's also offering for the congregation. This is a special day, right? This is the day that the high priest is going to make these offerings and do this. The garments from Exodus 28 are gone, just the simple white linens, and on this day the heavenly glory and the mantle just get set aside, and they're going to wash completely on this day. Normally washing is just the feet, right? And if you just wash the feet and the hands, you're ceremonially cleaned. You don't have to get fully undressed. But on this day, the priest is going to wash completely and take a full bath. The two kids of the goat offering are going to come. They're going to be there. Verse 6, Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and his house. Even the high priest has to admit humbly and take a bath (laughs) that he has the biggest sacrifices needed. If you're in the ministry... Looking at your own need for sacrifice is probably more important than any of the people you're going to serve or help, right? And if I look at people that are studying the Bible on a Sunday evening, you're probably in the ministry in some way. You're probably serving the Lord somehow. Start with yourself. And even the high priest of Israel had to have an entire bull for his sacrifice. And he shows everyone his own sin before the people. So he has to humbly admit this kind of need for sacrifice in front of everyone. Compared to the Egyptian religions they just got done with where the priests puffed themselves up, this is amazing. There's no secrets here. There's no loftiness here. This is a humble human being saying, I'm here to serve. And frankly, on the Day of Atonement, I'm thinking the high priest wakes up thinking, is this the day I'm going to die? Because if he does this wrong or falsely, he's going to get killed instantly because God enforces the rules in his own temple. So the high priest had to come with fear and trembling that this could be the last day of his life. So he wakes up, he does it. If he does it with the right heart, this is majestic. If he does it with the wrong heart, um, we're going to have to get a new high priest. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of meeting, which means if he's at the door, he's out in front of the people. And Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats. He might be using the, the Urim and the Thummim from his little pouch. One for the Lord and the other for the, the other lot for the scapegoat. So the two goats, there's going to be one that goes to the Lord and one that's going to be a scapegoat, and we'll see more about that. Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bowl of the sin offering, which is for himself, Make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as the sin offering, which is for himself. So again, repeating the idea that he needs to do this for himself first, and then these other things come into play. This kind of echoes of the two birds that were needed for leprosy. Remember in the cleansing of leprosy, there were two birds. One got killed, and one got set free. And we're going to do the same thing with the goats. It's almost like God was setting up these other sacrifices to help get this image pure for today and so that we can recognize it. It's all one big picture of our relationship with God, right? The randomizing of the two goats is really interesting. It means the goats are interchangeable. It doesn't matter which goat gets to be in which place, and God's going to pick which goat's in which place through this idea of randomization or, or drawing lots, right? 
the scapegoat word, this is interesting. There's a mountain kind of close to, to Jerusalem called Mount Azazel, and it's named after this word. Scapegoat in the Hebrew is Azazel, which frankly is just a great word. Um, it means removal or to escape, to get away out into the desert. So Mount Azazel is a place where it kind of became a place traditionally as Israel got bigger and bigger, it was harder and harder to get a goat out into the wilderness because you could bring a goat outside the city and it would just randomly walk its way back into the city. A lot like sin, you can try to get it out of your life and if you don't get it far enough away, it's just going to come right back into your life, right? So they had they, the Jews did all these crazy things to get the scapegoat far enough away from Jerusalem and far enough away from the camp to where it just didn't come walking back into their life. So they would have a series of tents set up, you know, like in Lord of the Rings when they light the towers and they can communicate across distances. They'd have these things where it's on the Sabbath, so they can only travel half a day on the Sabbath without breaking their rules that they made. So they would go half a day, hand it off to the guy at the next tent. He would go half a day, get it to the guy at the next tent. And eventually, after a season, they would flag back that the goat was officially far enough away. That tradition changed, and the Jewish people, I think, regrettably started to kill the goat. They would take it outside the city, and one of the people would just kind of secretly kill it so that it couldn't sneak back into their life. Um, but that's not the image that God wants to have here. At this point, it just gets sent as far as the east is from the west. This goat that's carrying the sin, this azazel, the scapegoat, is just going to get kicked out as far away as possible. Um, that it can go. Verse 12, then he shall take a censer full of burning coals from the fire, from the altar before the Lord, and that altar is the bronze altar, the, the atonement altar. And so they're going to take fire from there, which God lit, remember, uh, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. Inside the veil, you've got leathers and linens that insulate this place. It's quiet. It's a small room with a golden ark in the middle. And when he goes inside the veil, the first time he goes inside the veil, he's bringing this incense. Incense. <clears throat> Verse 13, he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord and that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that's on the testimony, lest he die. That lest he die is, again, why the high priest would wake up hoping he remembers how to do this right. It's been a year. Right? So that little room just gets filled with a cloud of incense. And incense is kind of this image of prayer. Again, the altar is an image of atonement. The Lord is an image of the Lord. And you get this idea of that the prayer and the atonement before the Lord is how it all starts out. Praying for forgiveness. Lord, atone for our sins as a nation. Atone for my sins as a high priest. And the first thing I'm going to do when I come before the Lord is recognize humbly and pray for the atonement of sin. That becomes the, the first and the foremost thing that you do when you come before the Lord. When any human wants to come before the Lord, they should likewise come with prayer and supplication for atonement for their sins. That hasn't changed in the new covenant under Jesus Christ. The people on this day then would be all outside the tabernacle. When the priest goes walking in, they're going in, they're laying bets on if he's coming out or not. But they're all outside in the courtyard praying for him too. Forgive his sins. Forgive our sins. The whole nation should be doing this on Yom Kippur. They should be striking themselves with this thought that we're sinners and we need forgiveness. Verse 14. He shall take some of the blood of, and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat 
On the east side, before the mercy seat, he'll sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times, just kind of splashing it. This is the second time he enters the holy veil. You know, the incense stuff is taken care of. He gets some of this blood. He sprinkles it on the altar. And he does this for the people. And he goes in a third time. And he makes atonement for all the people, right? The second time he's doing it for himself from the bull. And now he's going to do it from that first goat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgressions for all their sins. So he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So after five chapters of clean and unclean, we see that we see in this sentence, it's kind of embedded right there, which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Humans, you can't through works become clean. If you didn't get that from the last five chapters, you're missing something. There's simply some total, no way to be clean. Maybe the food chapter, like we can eat kosher, maybe those rules, which is maybe why the Jewish people really focused on how to eat is because you get this sense of I can do that if I try hard enough. But man, you get to the last chapter, chapter 15, there's no way you can stop that stuff. Um, you can't through works become clean, so God's going to do this in the midst of their uncleanness. We're going to have this sacrificial system. The sin against God, the transgression against each other, and for the tabernacle even needs this atonement. So the tabernacle is going to get the atonement, this thing that humans built, right? The sin that's going to be there. Sin is against God. Transgressions are against other people. All of this coming together. You think from God's view on the people right now and what they're praying for. It had to be in some ways beautiful because here's a people praying for atonement. In, others, in other ways, the God's view is he looks at these people and they all have spiritual leprosy. They all have uncleanness, right? And in this sense, God's going to take that and there's going to be this blood is covering that up. And what God's going to see is a people who wants to give sacrifice to be in a relationship with him. There's nothing holy about the tent or the temple because it needs the blood sprinkled on it. The only thing that's holy here is the Lord. The only thing that will become holy and make us holy is the living water that comes from the Lord. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of meeting when he goes in to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself. This is the high priest for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. Verse 18, and he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns on the, of, of the altar all around. And then he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. So the first goat is going to atone for the people in a proper sacrifice, the place, the blood, the covering from the inside out, the mercy seat all the way out to the altar of atonement. It's going to be atoned for once a year, one day a year. And the whole thing is covered with the life, the blood of this goat. One goat saves millions of people, right? It only takes one sacrifice in God's eyes to atone for nations worth of people. In the same sense, when Jesus dies, one sacrifice is going to atone for the world, right? And from God's eyes, that works. It's not about how many things get sacrificed. Solomon, I think, was just sacrificing thousands of animals. It's not about that. It, it's about the spirit with which it's done, the prayers with which it's done, the hearts of the people when it's done. 
Verse 20, and when he has made an end to the, for, of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle and meeting in the altar, he shall bring in the live goat. This is part two. Remember, there's one, two goats for one sacrifice. They're the same kind of imagery. In one sense, the first half dies, but the second half is going to live, just like with the turtle doves when we cleansed leprosy. Verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions concerning all their sins and putting them on the head of the goat and shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. If it's been a bad year for Israel, this is a long prayer, right? Because he's going through everything. If we had a high priest for the United States, this prayer might take weeks, right? This would be an epic prayer of all the things that we've done wrong. Um, so the people are probably out there hoping for a short prayer that they've been good this year, you know, and that the prayer's kind of limited. I'm thinking that the high priest would have prayed in general for these things, but he's pressing his hand into the head of this live goat, pushing his hand into it like he does with all the burnt sacrifices, all the sin sacrifices, all the transgressions the trans, uh, sacrifices that they do all year at the tabernacle. But in this case, they're, they're going to do this with the goat for the one thing. And verse 22, the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities and to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness. So they're going to find a suitable man, verse 21, who's going to lead this goat away, and take it to another place. There's going to be a single person, undefined here, but the person is suitable. Okay, Suitable means what exactly what we think it means, that they are pure, that they are respected, that they are honored. Ultimately, to take our sins away, to haul our sins to another place, we have to find a suitable person to do that. You can see where the Jewish people started praying for Messiah. This Messiah would be the suitable person that could take the sins away and take it far away, right? So the first goat is sacrificed for the sins. The first goat dies just like Jesus died on a cross. But the same sacrifice, goat part two, bears the sins away from the camp. Just like Jesus washes away our sins as far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Psalm 103 verse 12, they're gone. We need a suitable Messiah to do that work for us. And every year the Jewish people are going to do this symbolic ceremony, remembering and hoping for that suitable man to appear, this Messiah. And it creates a culture where the Jewish people ache for Messiah. They start to pray for Messiah. They write songs about Messiah. The prophets tell stories about Messiah. And we see the entire Old Testament looking for Messiah and it starts every year they're going to have this scapegoat and they're going to find a suitable man to haul it away because ultimately that's a one-year plan. And they're looking for a permanent, eternal plan that will take our sins as far as the east is from the west. So in practice, they would get this goat and they would get it out of here uh, and they would take that, but ultimately that practice is only going to last a year. Jesus will be infinitely superior to the one-year goat and he will be the eternal goat that hauls the, the, the suitable man that takes that goat of sin and hauls it out of the camp. Verse 23. I, you know, I, this is so amazing. That what God's doing right here is painting a picture that the people hearing it would have no idea how perfect this is for what he's going to do on the cross through Jesus Christ. None. And it's one of those indicators that you read something that happens hundreds of years before an event, 
and you say how you see how perfectly God has orchestrated history. And you think, how could anyone doubt what's going on here? How could you how could you in any rational sense think that this isn't God inspired and God driven? No human thinks this stuff up, right? And then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, take off the linen, linen gar garments which he put on when he was in a holy place, and he shall leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the, of the people and make atonement for himself and the people. So he's killed the first goat, which means these linens are soiled. So even in the practice of doing this beautiful image of Christ, the priest is in the holy place, so he's going to get changed inside that holy place, not the holy of holies, but the place outside of it, and he's going to use it like a changing room. He's going to take off these linen garments, and he's going to put on his garments. So he's going to take off these humble linens, and he's going to put on these glorious heavenly robes that God's ordained and he's going to step out from the for the people. So he's either going to be dead and they're going to have to haul him out of there by the rope they've tied to his ankle or he's going to come out in these glorious robes bathed and cleaned and renewed. You think the cheer that would have come up from the crowd when he walks out, right? And they see him coming out in these beautiful heavenly robes. It's interesting how important the clothing is in this ceremony. They make a key point of the clothes getting changed and when they get changed and what garments are going to be put on and when and how they're going to do it. And you think, oh, that seems kind of incidental. And I think, and I was reminded in John 13, we read this story about um, Jesus and typically the clothing is something we just read right over in this story. And, and, and we'll get here and you'll notice it, but the clothing is important to John because John's bringing this image of, of Leviticus into his story about Jesus. So listen to this story and listen for the garments getting changed, right? So <clears throat> to an educated Jews, the, the changing of the garments and the washing of things would have been a really important image that would have struck the Yom Kippur. They would have grown up every year seeing this holiday, right? So it's like me putting on a Santa suit. Right? That would trigger something in our collective knowledge and collectively to the Jews when Jesus changes his garments and starts washing things. That would have set off an image of this holiday. John 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, right? so he's going to go into the holy presence of God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments. Takes off his clothes right? Takes a towel and girds himself humbly in a linen. And after that, he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded, right? He's going to clean himself up. And he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, you are, you, are you washing my feet? And I love Peter because he has this great ability to declare the obvious. And I'm sure Jesus at some point, his patience was tested with Peter. He's kind of looking at him like, what do you think I'm doing, right? But Jesus answers him and says to him with grace, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. Thinking this is an authority structure thing, right? A servant washes feet. And Peter's saying, you're not my servant, I'm your servant. It's a great thought from Peter. You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answers him, if I don't wash you, you'll have no part of me. 
right? This is echoes of Exodus 30, verse 20. Uh, you shall do it my way or die, right? This is something where, you know, Aaron's sons figured this out. If, if God doesn't wash them, they're not worthy of his presence. And Jesus is saying, I have to do this. This isn't the act of a servant. This is the act of your God. I'm going to cleanse you and wash you. And Simon Peter says to him, I think he kind of gets it, Lord, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands and my head too. Let's do the whole nine yards. Wash all of me. So Peter, you know, is, goes to extremes. And Jesus says to him, he who is bathed needs only wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Jesus goes to what's a ceremonial definition of clean. Uh, Exodus 30, verse 19, you just wash your hands and feet and you're clean all over. And if they washed their hands before their meal, like they should have, the only thing that needed to be washed was their feet. Ceremonially, this is how priests would prepare to do their work. Jesus is making a holy priesthood. And, G and I think Peter gets this. All the disciples start to get it right now because he, because he changed his garments, because he came humbly before them and he started to wash their feet. But we often read over the garments part. Verse 11, uh, back in John, for he knew he would betray him and therefore he said, you're not all clean. It's kind of a, a commentary. They're talking about Judas. Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and he sat down again and said to them, do you know what I've done to you? So notice that at the end of the story, he puts back on his garments, right? Just like the high priest puts back on his robes and gets back to his normal thing. Yeah, what's he done to them? He's just made them into a holy priesthood by the rules of Leviticus 16. He's followed the process. He even changed his clothes to do the washing that needed to be done. So he's the high priest and he's making the kafar. The, the kafar is the Hebrew word for atonement or covering. He's making kafar for all the people. And the garments are a significant religious ceremonial symbol of this happening, right? I want to go back to that verse at the end of this section that says he comes out and offers his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people and make atonement for himself and for the people. You notice how the language there translated into English is still kind of weird, and I'm reading from New King James Version, verse, verse 24. Put on his garments, come out, and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. The reason that's worded a little bit awkwardly is that it's kind of an interesting sentence in the Hebrew. Come out is yatsa and offer asa his burnt offering olah and the burnt offering the same word olah and the people am to make atonement kafar for himself and for his people am. So if you read this in the Hebrew, it's yatsa asa olah olah am kafar am. The conjunctions that get added in there for the English to kind of make sense in English aren't in the Hebrew. The Hebrew has a lot of those conjunctions through how they write the different words, and they get added, and therefore the jots and the tittles on the words make a big difference because they show connections between the words. Yatsa asa ola ola am kafar am can be translated the way it's translated, and it's a perfectly legit translation what I just read. But in the Hebrew, it could also legitimately be translated like this. He'll put on his garments and come out and offer himself as a burnt offering, an offering for all the people, a covering or an atonement for all the people. It could be read as a messianic sentence. And in fact, when Jesus does what he does, that might be the better translation, even though it would be really awkward in the English to write it that way in Leviticus. 
Yatsa asa ola, ola am, kafar am. Jesus puts on his garments, he comes out from the Lord's Supper, right? Comes out from this moment with his disciples, and he offers himself as a burnt offering, an offering for everyone, and it's a covering or atonement for everyone. Jesus becomes the atonement sacrifice. That's a powerful sentence if you found it in the New Testament. It's an amazingly powerful sentence in the Old Testament because it predicts that there will be a person that takes the place of the goat. Stunning. So God's going to put that in his word precisely and accurately and what might not make sense to the Jewish people for hundreds of years suddenly is read by the Christians going, this is incredible. This is exactly how that should have been translated. It's been done right. So the Jewish people rightly translate the Bible for hundreds of years and they don't change a word of it because it's important how it's worded. It's important to us today how it's worded. So this offering is still waiting to be burnt up, right? So they've killed the goat, but they haven't yet set the goat on fire. So on verse 25, the fat of the sin offering, he shall burn on the altar. And remember when we put fat onto burning coals, we get this explosion of fire. It's a show. It's amazing. So the priest walks out in his robes and bam, the fire lights up. This is time to celebrate. And he, verse 26, who released the goat as the scapegoat, shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterwards may come into the camp. Um, even those that are in exile and helped bring the goat apart, they're going to return. The suitable man will come back to the camp. Unlike chapter 15 where you had to wait till evening after you washed, there's no waiting here. They get to immediately return to the camp. They just wash and they come back to the camp. No waiting time, no wait till evening. So even those that are exiled in sin, when there's a washing or a forgiveness, it's this immediate thing where they get to come back right now. Verse 27, we see it again. The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering and whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp and they shall burn in the fire their skins, their flesh, and their offal. And then he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, take a bath, and come into the camp. Get Everybody come back to the camp as soon as you can. Gather, come return, right? God's gathering up his people from all over the place. The people that do the outside the camp goat, the people that do the outside the camp burning, they're all coming back. God's will is and always has been to gather and unite his people. Verse 29, this shall be a statute forever for you. In the seventh month, on the, day, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict your souls and do no work at all, whether a native of your own country or a stranger who dwells among you, Jew or Gentile. Nobody works. You're going to take this day seriously. Jewish people, Israel, Yom Kippur is going to be a great day for you, but take it seriously. It's not a party. It's a time to rest. It's time to consider and soberly think reflect upon what's going on. There are celebration holidays. We'll get to those. This isn't one of those. This is one of those holidays where you think and you consider. The timing's important. The day of the month, the time of the month, we're going to see later with Jesus, those days and times become really relevant in how Jesus carries out his ministry and fits the requirements of these things. For on that day, verse 30, the priest shall make atonement for you and cleanse you, that you may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. What a gift. It's a Sabbath of solemn rest for you, and you shall afflict your souls. It's a statute forever. Verse 29 says afflict your souls. 
Verse 30 says, afflict your souls. The word afflict is anna. It means to be occupied with or to burden ourselves, to humble ourselves, become low, downcast, and weak because we're so burdened with a thought, to be afflicted by it, right? It's a temporary thing, one day, but it's a cleansing day to have that. That morning, that affliction is part of what cleanses us, right? Later on in history, the Jews are going to water down Yom Kippur, right? They're going to substitute the, sa the, the, the sacrifices, and they're going to have smaller and smaller sacrifices. And they're going to interpret the sacrifices as doing good deeds or giving to charity or helping the poor. In Eastern Europe Jewish traditions, they would even beat themselves. They interpreted into affliction as hurting themselves, right? Some weird stuff. If they just read Leviticus 16... To afflict ourselves is to take it soberly, verse 31, a solemn rest. Take some time and think about your sin. Think about what God's forgiven and who had to sacrifice to give you that forgiveness. Think about the poor little goat that just got left in the wilderness all by himself, not knowing where his home is or where his little goat family is, and he's going to die out in that wilderness because goats don't survive well out there by themselves. They're herd animals. Think about that goat that's taken all that punishment for you and your sins, right? You identify with the goat. You afflict yourself with the injustice of what the goat has to endure in the same way that we can identify with Jesus Christ and what he endured for us. Jesus didn't deserve a cross. I deserved a cross. Jesus didn't get to be left alone on a cross, away from his father, away from his family. I mean, he prays to his father and his father's forsaken him. Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Right? Left alone in the wilderness, outside the city, with no one. Why? Afflict yourself with that thought. It's purifying. Right? That's your death that was deserved. Right? That death on the cross, the casting out from the congregation, that's what you deserve. That's what I deserve, right? Trouble yourself, afflict yourself with that idea that you're the goat, right? And we identify with the cross, with Christ. We identify with that thought. We know it, we absorb it, we afflict ourselves with it, and then we're covered by it. We're atoned for because of this, this system. In verse 32, and... We don't end with this statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated to minister as a priest in his father's place shall make atonement for him and put on the linen clothes and the horny garments. What a sentence, right? Not just for the Jewish people. I mean, in a practical sense, this means this isn't just for Aaron. It's a statute forever. And when Aaron dies, his son will take over and there will be a chain of high priests. But you think of this and you think there will be a priest who takes his father's place, right? And when Jesus claims that God is his father and claims this priesthood, right? And he puts on the linen clothes and he washes his disciples' feet, he's anointed and he's consecrated. This priest in verse 32 is who is anointed, that's past tense. He has been anointed and is consecrated as present tense who is anointed and consecrated, present continuing tense, to minister to the priest in his father's place. Amazing sentence. Verse 33, Then he shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of meeting and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. Everybody's going to be atoned for. 
everybody's going to be brought into the kingdom. This is an everlasting stature for you. Everlasting, by the way, means exactly what it sounds like it means. It means it doesn't go away with the Levitical priesthood. What we're reading in chapter 16, these symbols will become real with Jesus Christ. So some of these things are things that will go away after the Mosaic priesthood goes away. But some of these things, this idea of atonement, this idea of a sacrifice that purifies all and brings people into the assembly, that idea goes everlasting. It even goes past the, the church age that we're in right now. This goes through all of eternity. It's an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of, their, of Israel for their sins once a year. So this is a summary, verses 32 through 34, summarizes these key important points. One, in verse 34, this isn't just for Aaron. It's an eternal role for the high priests, right? And then it keeps going when we look at like how this works with the, uh, the priesthood later. Hebrews 9 kind of wrestles with this a little bit. I want to read you a passage from Hebrews 9. Listen to it in light of Leviticus 16. Hebrews 9, verse 6 now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But in the second part, the high priest went in once a year. That holy of holies is the second part of the tabernacle. Not without blood, which he offered for himself and for his people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic, Hebrews uh, 9, verse 9. It was symbolic for the present time in which both the gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concerned only with food and drinks and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. I like verse 10. It summarizes Leviticus chapter 11 through 15 in one sentence, right? They're concerned with all this nonsense, right? The stuff until the time where it's been reformed. And then verse 11, Hebrews 9, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation. Christ makes a new tabernacle, a new way to get to the Holy of Holies, to get to the presence of God through Christ as the high priest, the mediator. There can only be one person that goes in to this place, and that's Christ. We're brought into the presence of God through Christ and in Christ. Only one person can do it. They'll be humble, right? They will wash the people and wash themselves. That singular person represents the one person who makes the atonement for all. It's not permanent. That's the other kind of summary concept we get out of these last few verses in Leviticus. It happens once a year. What we're talking about here is not a permanent thing. It only lasts for a year. So that eternal statute that will go on forever and ever has to be redone every year. That doesn't sound very eternal. It sounds like an oxymoron. But that's because they're going to do it once a year as a reminder of the fact that this is just a symbol. And in Hebrews 9, verse 9, that's what, they're, that's what the writer is pointing out. This is a symbolic system. But Christ comes as a high priest and fulfills that system. Now it's everlasting for Christians to do this. I think that Yom Kippur for Christians is kind of substituted by Easter. Easter is when we have this day of sober reflection, this day of fasting, right? Um, where we consider Christ's death and then thankfully his resurrection, right? Hebrews goes on and I'm going to read from chapter 10 
previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I've come to you to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. He takes away the Mosaic tradition so he can establish the, the Jesus Christ tradition. By that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Not just one year, but for every year. And the, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which never take away sins. But this man, Jesus after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sits down at the right hand of God. That's what makes Jesus different than the other high priests. Right? He gives a sacrifice. He goes on to sit with God. And from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering, he's perfected forever an eternal statute, those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts and in their minds, and I will write them. And then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. They're as far as the east is from the west. They've been put onto a goat and they've been taken outside of the town. So when we read Hebrews, we see a commentary on Leviticus 16. Right? These are essential ways that God's going to symbolize a way to be atoned with him. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. What a beautiful thought. And he did, the last line, and he did as the Lord commanded Moses. That's a good call, Moses and Aaron. Do what the Lord tells you to do. Traditionally, Yom Kippur ends, the season of reflection ends by the blowing of the shofar. There's a trumpet that the Jewish people would blow at the end of Yom Kippur, and it announces the Messiah is coming, right? When the trumpet blows. Um, I think sometimes the last time that I've soberly sat and thought about the sacrifice of Jesus, or even just think about the sacrifice of these poor goats for hundreds of years. Hundreds of goats had to die this way, right? And you think of the sacrifice that covers my sin my pain in order for me to have fellowship with God, for the Holy Spirit to be in me and for God to write his law in my heart. There had to be the sacrifice for that to happen. If I soberly think about that, I eventually come to the point of praise. And I think when I afflict myself with the thought of Christ's death and resurrection, I come to a point of praise. Praise the Lord that I'm made whole in God. Praise the Lord that he organized this plan for history where I could be atoned for and I could come into his graceful presence. Praise the Lord for all of those things. So I afflict myself with a thought. I come to that point where I've embraced it. And then suddenly I take a bath, I get dressed, and I go on with my day. And that's the order of events for these priests. Take a nice long shower, get dressed, and move out in front of the people. And when you come out, you're in the glorious robes that have been put on you by God. God's written his law on your heart soberly afflict yourself with a thought, humbly come before the Lord, fill the holy place there with incense and prayer, right? Fill it with a cloud of your prayers, asking for atonement, and God gives it to you. He gives it to you, he washes you clean, he puts these new garments on you, and you walk out and you are a new creation in Christ. You're not the kind of being that'll wipe its boogers on the back of the wall anymore. You walk pure, 
You don't ask other people to clean up your mess and your discharges because those things are purified and they're gone. You're a new creation, right? And you then the last thing is you start listening for the trumpet that Christ will return and claim and gather his own unto himself. That's the promise. Your sins are gone now. You can live it. You can embrace it. You can know these things by soberly reflecting on it. But we ultimately, as people of God, we're waiting for his return. We're waiting for the trumpet to blow because Christ said and promised he would return. And as that promise was made, and it will be kept as he's made every other promise and kept it to date. Why doubt that that will happen? So we know our God because we've been imprinted and sealed with the image of God on us. Right? Ephesians 1. You're atoned for. Praise God for that. You're forgiven. Praise God for that. And there's a high priest that will go into the presence of God and atone for you and cover you and cover your sins so that the law is has a mercy seat over it that the law doesn't punish you. Legally, it should, but you're covered with the blood of Jesus Christ and you're atoned for. The Jewish people had to see that priest walk out of that tabernacle and have a similar feeling of praise. Praise the Lord. The priest didn't die. The priest is still alive. The priest has returned from what could have been an eternal death. And he's risen out of that tabernacle and he's saved us in the same way Christ does the same thing. He died on a cross and there's three days where his people are dreading our high priest could be dead. He went into the presence of God and he's just dead. And what do we do? And Peter's running away from little girls. He's so, you know, devastated by this moment, right? But then Jesus rises from the dead. He is clothed in glory and majesty. He goes into the presence of God and tells his disciples for weeks, I'm going to prepare a place for you and bring you in and gather you together in this place. And the trumpets will blow. And I'll come back like a thief in the night and I'll gather my people unto myself. That's the hope of Jesus Christ. And I think it's super neat, wonderful, that hundreds of years before Jesus in the book of Leviticus in chapter 16, we set up this tradition that gives us this beautiful image that we can carry with us. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Dear Lord and King, I just miss my brothers and sisters on Sunday night Bible study. Um, Lord, may your spirit help connect us even over digital uh, places. Lord, I just pray that um, you'll keep everyone healthy, uh, that you will bless us and bless this nation and bless our planet, Lord. Uh, you promised that at the end of days there would be wars and rumors of wars, that there would be pestilence, that there would be plagues. Um, and Lord, we, we see that and we know that with each round of these things, uh, we're getting closer and closer to that day when you're going to return. May our reaction not be one of fear. May our reaction be one of hope because we're listening for your trumpet. And as your people set aside, Lord, that soberly consider our sin and trust that you, your promises are true as you've promised that we are atoned for. Uh, Lord, we just put our whole life on that promise and we give it to you. Our lives aren't worth too much. Um, so we give what we have and whatever they're worth, Lord, we offer them over to you. And we just want to do that with reverence and with humility and with consideration, Lord. Let us afflict ourselves with that thought so that we can walk forward tonight and tomorrow clothed in your glory and in your majesty. May your living water cleanse us and purify us and run through us to give hope and life and grace to each person we run into. Lord, I pray for each person in this Bible study, each person listening to this uh, stream. Uh, Lord, may you bless them. 
may you give them the words of life so that they can share it with the people around them. May their hope be surpassing the understanding of everyone they know. In Jesus' name, do these things. God, be with us and, and, and guide us and counsel us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Normally, at this time, when everybody's here, we would sit and talk about the teaching. Um, so I'm going to mute myself, and I'm going to kind of look through the chat. If you've got questions you want to talk about, uh, we can do those things. But I'm going to uh, stop the normal. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.